You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. is Research for the Real World. Hi, I'm Emily McLeod and I'm a PhD researcher at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. In this season of Research for the Real World, we want to highlight research that looks into the lives of refugees and asylum seekers, considering their experiences in the UK in terms of care, housing, education access and human rights, and making recommendations based on evidence. On this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Meta Berg, Meta is a professor of migration and diaspora studies based at the Thomas Coram Research Unit, which is part of the UCL Social Research Institute here at Iowa. She joined UCL in 2015 and is a social anthropologist with research interests in migration, transnationalism and diaspora formation, as well as urban diversity, gender, belonging and social memory. Regionally, she specialises in Cuba and the wider Caribbean and Latin America region, as well as London and the UK. Meta is currently the director of an international comparative research project called Solidarities, which examines who is and who is not considered deserving of welfare services, and how deservingness is negotiated and with what implications in the context of increasing diversity. I look forward to hearing more about that. Meta, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much. Really delighted to be here. It's great to have you here. So before I ask you a bit more about your work now, it would be great to know you a bit more and find out how you came to be where you are now. So what is your own educational background and how did you become involved in working in education research? Yes, so I am Danish and went to school in Denmark. I actually dropped out of school when I was 16, but later found my way back into the educational system. And after completing so the equivalent of, of A-levels, went to Copenhagen University and studied social anthropology. When I had completed my master's in Copenhagen, I was keen to pursue further studies. And anthropology is quite a small discipline. And mm. so I wanted to look further afield. And so I came to the UK to do my doctorate in Oxford. And I've more or less stayed in the UK since then. <laughs> and how did you get involved in your area of research specifically after working in anthropology more generally? So I guess I have maybe just a general interest in migration. It's a topic that is rarely out of the headlines. I've also become increasingly aware of migration experiences in my own family background. My grandmother often talked about her experiences as a young woman moving to New York, seeking mm -hmm. work there. And so that was something that was perhaps important and formative to me. And for my master's fieldwork and thesis, I became interested in Cuba and the Caribbean. This was because at that time, so late 1990s, a very hot topic in anthropology at the time was about issues around what was called deterritorialization. So that mm -hmm. is how we can't always assume that people stay in one place or that cultures are tied to one place and one and, and one group of people. And this was an issue that was really interesting in a Caribbean context because the Caribbean is full of people who have been forcibly moved there or who have moved there. So it's a, a region 
characterized by mobility, uh, mm -hmm. transnational mobility. And so I went to Cuba uh, to look at some of these issues and then became more and more interested in the history of migration between Spain and Cuba. And then went on to write my doctoral thesis about the Cuban diaspora in Spain. So that was, that was the migration and diaspora uh, story <laughs> in, in my research. And can I um, ask, what do you mean by diaspora? Ah, yeah, it's a really good question. It's quite a contested term. But I think there's sort of a, maybe a, a sort of base consensus that it refers to a group of people who are scattered from some imagined or real mm -hmm. point of, of origin and who identify with that point of, of origin in some way and who mm -hmm. have a sense of some kind of community or identification with other people with the same, that same identification or background. Traditionally, it's been used uh, about groups of people who have a sort of traumatic history of, of being scattered or dispersed, mm -hmm. such as the Jewish diaspora, the Armenian diaspora. But increasingly, it's used also about other groups with different kinds of experiences. Thank you. That's really interesting and interesting to hear how you're own move to London as well informs that. Thank you. So I mentioned at the start that in this season of Research for the Real World, we're highlighting research that looks into the lives of refugees and asylum seekers. And with that in mind, I wanted to know how you define those terms when you're researching that area and also what challenges those groups of people face. Yes, big, big questions. So the term refugee is generally uh, used to refer to people who have obtained uh, status as refugee, as defined by the Refugee Convention, which is an important international uh, convention that the UK signed up to and which grants certain rights to people who are fleeing because of, of fear of persecution. When we say asylum seekers, we're referring to people who are seeking asylum, so seeking to be granted refuge or sanctuary somewhere other than their country. Of, of origin. And of course, the two people can move between those statuses. So an asylum seeker may become a refugee. And so they are linked. But mm -hmm. they are two distinct uh, legal and social statuses, you could say. Thank you. And what are the challenges that those people who come to the UK with those statuses are facing, especially now we're hearing with the war in Ukraine, people coming to the UK facing lots of problems? What challenges are those groups facing? This is a very contentious issue in, mm. in, in the UK, and there's quite a lot of quite shrill debate about it. But essentially, people are fleeing conflicts, wars, persecution. And most people who, who flee war or conflicts, persecution in their countries of origin, actually stay quite close to their home countries and seek refuge in mm. neighboring countries. But a small proportion of those who are fleeing flee further afield. It may be that they don't feel secure in neighboring countries. It may be that they have family connections uh, somewhere else. And so quite a small proportion of the world's refugees wind up in, in countries far away from where they, they set out from. And, and so the UK is one of them. In the UK, once people have entered and have lodged an, an application for asylum, they are then assessed. And if uh, someone seeking asylum is assessed as being destitute, they, they don't have independent means of, of survival, mm. they're given asylum support, which is a, a very meagre support. It's £40.85 per week. And they're also given accommodation. And people will initially be, be put into initial accommodation, which is often 
hotels or hostels. Mm -hmm. And then after a period of time there, we'll be then sent to what's called dispersal accommodation. So there's a, a system in the UK, as in other European countries, that people while they're waiting for the outcome of their asylum application, are sent to different parts of the country. Most people will arrive in, in the south of, of the UK for reasons of geography, but they will then be dispersed across the country. And this is a, a system that is, is quite fragmented. It's a system that's quite unstable and problematic in many ways. And so this is part of what my research has, has been about to look at what's it like for people in this in the case of in the research I did specifically in in Yorkshire Yorkshire mm. is a dispersal area so not all local areas in the UK have signed up to become dispersal areas the most affluent areas of the UK tend not to have signed up for it okay dispersal accommodation is allocated by private companies who have a, a contract with the home office and and they will tend to try and look for accommodation in places where it's relatively cheap and so that does mean that this tends will be in places that are relatively deprived in places where maybe properties are hard to let because there aren't many job opportunities in, mm. in areas so uh, so in the very system of dispersal, we start to see some problems and issues that asylum seekers face. And it sounds like there are a lot of barriers to integration as well with the wider community. And I know that your Solidarities Project links in with that. And you've mentioned it. you do part of the research in Yorkshire, which I'm really interested to hear because I went to university in Yorkshire and taught in Yorkshire. So could you tell us a bit more about the Solidarities Project and, and what the aims of the research are? Yes. So the uh, Migrants and Solidarities Project is an international comparative project, as we've already mentioned. And we're working with colleagues in Sweden and Denmark. And we're interested in questions around deservingness. So what is deservingness? So the ideas that underlie decisions, policies around who should have access to welfare state services, support and care. And there will be some formal criteria for that. But if we sort of think about what underlies that, there will be some ideas of well, some people are more or less deserving than others. And so we're not interested in the research project in constructing hierarchies of deservingness, but rather mm. in asking questions about those underlying notions. What does and what are the implications on the ground in terms of access to care for different groups of, of people? Mm -hmm. And what have you found? Uh, between the three countries? Because I imagine there are some differences between what is seen as deserving in different contexts. That's, that's exactly right. So we see firstly in terms of welfare states, these are three interesting countries to compare because Sweden and Denmark have at least traditionally been sort of social democratic welfare mm. states and the UK is more of a, a neoliberal uh, welfare state. Uh, so that means that there are different underlying notions around services and, and access. But then when we look at policies around migration, it's a little bit different where Sweden and the UK have traditionally been more open and more open also to thinking of themselves as multicultural societies or countries. Mm. And Denmark has traditionally been 
more closed in that respect. So there are similarities and, and differences that cut across in different ways. What we're seeing in the three countries at the moment is that they are all tightening their access, their, their services, and making it more difficult for migrant groups, including people seeking asylum, to gain mm. access to welfare, uh, support and care. Okay. And, and how are you conducting that research? Is it a qualitative study? Yes, so this is a purely qualitative study based on ethnography. That means uh, research where we're really interested in understanding things from the ground up, working with people on the ground. So in this case, both migrants, people seeking asylum, refugees Mm. or labour migrants, but also the people who support them in different ways. Uh, This could be people working in the third sector or it could be volunteers, people who advocate in some way or other for rights and access of migrant groups. Mm -hmm. And then finally, frontline workers. So it could be people working for local authorities, or it could be people working for arm's length organizations that deliver services to to people in, in local areas and who often work in quite pressured circumstances and often Mm -hmm. have to make decisions in a rush and who have limited resources. So also have to be quite careful about decisions they make about who can gain access to what kinds of services. And so we're really interested in looking at how these issues work out on the ground in encounters between these three different groups of people. And of course, we recognize that migrants can also be advocates and they can also be frontline workers and frontline workers can also be migrants and so on. Mm. So, so there's some overlap of actual people within these three categories. Of course, that sounds really important, but wouldn't automatically, I wouldn't automatically think of those other groups, the volunteers and the frontline workers as being important to hear from, but I imagine they've got such useful information and knowledge that is really important to the research. Yes, they they do and they have. And I think they're really important to listen to as well. Mm -hmm. So in the UK, for example, there is research by other colleagues showing that the third sector is increasingly filling the gaps of welfare services for Mm -hmm. migrants and people seeking asylum that because of austerity measures, withdrawal of state services, more and more third sector workers and volunteers are stepping in and, and filling the gaps. And so it's really important to understand and and hear their perspectives uh, as well. And hear their expertise, I'm sure. I imagine, knowing how long it takes to plan a research project, that you may not have foreseen that the war in Ukraine would be happening at the time you're doing your research. Have you had to alter your project at all? Has that affected the work that you're doing? Yeah, really interesting. No, lots of things happened since we planned the the project. We didn't, funnily enough, foresee a a pandemic coming (laughs) and and we didn't foresee the war in in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine hasn't affected this project too much, but Mm -hmm. we can perhaps talk about it later because I am about to start new research uh, looking at policies and practices around the reception of of Ukrainians in the UK. But of course, uh, that is is going to have an effect as more and more Ukrainians will arrive. Interestingly, Ukrainians arriving in the UK are not going to be channeled into the same asylum system that I've just talked about. They are being accepted into the UK under two different schemes. One is the Ukraine Family Scheme and the other one is the Homes for Ukraine scheme. So these are uh, 
uh, quite different mechanisms of reception. They are mm -hmm. not going to be put into the dispersal accommodation that I talked about earlier, but rather going to be hosted by private individuals or families or, yeah. or uh, community organisations across the UK. So it's quite a different situation and quite a different support system. Yeah, it sounds like as someone completely new to the area, there are a lot of different systems all trying to presumably work together sometimes, but they sound quite separate. That is a real issue, I think, that there are a lot of ad hoc schemes, so schemes yeah. that are set up to deal with specific situations. Like this one, and so yeah. it's great that we can see with the Ukraine scheme that there's been a lot of enthusiasm and support and the government has said that there's no limit to how many Ukrainians can arrive in the UK. That's great. But let's not forget that there are also other wars and conflicts and there are still people fleeing those as well, people yeah. from Syria, Afghanistan, uh, Sudan, Eritrea, places, and they still uh, need our support as well. Yes, of course. I wanted to ask as well about the co-participatory nature of your research. Could you tell us a bit more about what that means and how it shapes the research that you do? Yes. So the research that we've done in Yorkshire around people in the asylum system mm -hmm. has been done in a participatory way. So when I say we, I'm talking about my colleague uh, Eve Dixon, who is a research fellow uh, on the project and mm -hmm. myself. And we were really keen to work in a less hierarchical way with people who are affected by the issues that we were interested in. So compared to uh, traditional or conventional uh, research methods, yeah. we were also really well constrained, I guess, because when we started the research in 2020, we were still in the midst of lockdowns and we mm -hmm. weren't actually even physically allowed to travel to Yorkshire at the of time. Course. So we had to find a way in which we could find out about what was happening on the ground without actually being on the ground. Mm. And so we were very inspired by work by colleagues that have sought to decolonize migration studies or mm -hmm. studies of migration and work that has sought to bring in research subjects, bring them into also the research process. And so we worked collaboratively with a group of six co-researchers, people who have personal experience of the asylum system. They were an amazing group of people from five different countries, three different continents, three men, three women, who we recruited for the project through our local partner organization in Halifax, mm -hmm. St. Augustine Centre. And with them, we we devised a program of training in research methods, interviewing techniques, ethnographic methods, and so on, all of this online. And we then met with them once or twice a week over a period of five months. In oh, wow. And they, in between the meetings, then generated material in different ways. So we have a really rich body of material. We have audios, videos, photographs, written text, interviews, a whole range of different material that all sought to explore the, the perspectives and experiences of people in the asylum system in Yorkshire. That sounds like a lot of data to analyse, <laughs> but yeah. I, I really admire that approach to the research, uh, not just including the participants, but, but conducting the research with them and, and having them as co-researchers. I think that's such a, a move forward and it is a, yeah a move away from that traditional methods that, that we get taught at university typically so you've mentioned that you've got all of this data and I'm aware that you've published a report recently which has some key recommendations to help asylum seekers whilst they wait for applications 
Can you talk us through some of those recommendations and why they're needed? Yes, absolutely. So I think I said before that the asylum system is quite fragile and, and fragmented and this is widely known and has been pointed out by parliamentary select committees and other groups before and also by the third sector organisations that work in the field. So in that sense, it's not, not new, um, but it's still needed and important that these things are being pointed out and insisted upon. But the, we have a, sort of a set of high-level recommendations, you might call it, so mm-hmm. about the, the system itself and then also a series of more kind of practical slightly kind of lower level uh, recommendations mm. if you like uh, so at the higher level we think it's really it would be much better if people seeking asylum were incorporated into the mainstream uh, welfare system rather than being supported through the uh, the current separate system which is a privatized system so it's private providers who are providing state yeah. services and that produces certain dynamics and weaknesses. It would also be much, much better for people in the asylum system if the asylum application processing times were faster so that they don't get stuck in the system. They don't have to be in limbo for so long. I and imagine. Also, do you, mind, do you yeah. mind me asking how long that process is normally? So that varies quite dramatically, but there are more and more people who are stuck for more than six months and and, and also considerably longer than that. And during that period, uh, bear in mind, people are not allowed to work generally unless they have skills, uh, very particular kinds of skills that are seen as as particularly needed for the UK. Uh, During this period of time, they're living on very minimal asylum support. Mm. They're not allowed to open a bank account. They're given weekly um, maintenance support through something called an Aspen card, which is Mm. a kind of prepaid debit card, which means that every time they go into a shop to pay for something, those working in the shops can see, oh, this is an asylum seeker I'm serving here. So it's quite stigmatizing, uh, demeaning. I imagine that links in with the whole purpose of the project, this deservingness, how other people see them if they've got this label, this card. Yes, yes, exactly. So, So it's a really... It's a very difficult time uh, mm. in which people are living in living in enforced destitution because yeah. they're not allowed to work. So if asylum processing times were cut down, obviously it'd be much, much better for those people. It would also save money because people would be able to get on with their lives and, and find yeah. jobs and support themselves in a dignified manner. Another problem is that a lot of the decisions are appealed. Uh, so there's not, and many of them are upheld. So if the decision-making process in the first instance were better, so that would also cut down on, well, frankly, a lot of human suffering uh, yeah. and people with sort of lives in limbo. So those would be kind of high-level recommendation, you might say. I mentioned that there, this the asylum system is characterized by these private contractors who deliver services on behalf of the Home Office. And here, there's a, it's a very fragmented system, so there's not very much communication and coordination between the different stakeholders, including private contractors. So it would be good for the Home Office to have a stronger role in coordinating uh, with different stakeholders as well. And which again would mean that those who are living and within the system would it would just make things a little bit easier for them. And if they were allowed to work across the board, then they would be able to start integrating. They would be mm. able to support themselves in a dignified manner. And they would they would not live lives, uh, live in destitution as they have to do 
now. Mm. So those are the sort of the high level recommendations we have. We, mm. we think that overall that, that would help decrease social isolation of people in the asylum system and yeah. also enable people to contribute in meaningful ways to their local communities. Yes, so, it would help both sides, not, not just the individuals. Okay. Yeah. So at the more so slightly lower level of recommendations, I talked about how people are dispersed to different areas. And in fact, people don't have any choice in that. People who seek asylum are not consulted and don't have a choice in the area that they are dispersed to while their application is being processed. But if they had a choice of accommodation, the kind type of accommodation they would like to live in, and also in the location, then they would be able to settle closer to co-ethnic networks, to uh, friends or families. And again, that would then support them in starting, uh, settling in and starting a new life. We also think it would be really important that inclusion and sustainable communities are a key priority in the accommodation procurement process. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that would mean that rather than seeking the the cheapest available accommodation, uh, that there was a consultation with local authorities and communities about sustainable levels of settlement of people in the asylum system and finding better ways of of procuring the accommodation. You've reminded me that I saw some news recently about an asylum camp being set up in an RAF base in Yorkshire and that just from the face of it sounds very temporary and isolated and not necessarily beneficial for integrating into the community. No, absolutely. And of course, uh, some of these former army camps have mm. exactly been uh, decommissioned because they were not deemed suitable for, for soldiers to live in. And so now they're suddenly deemed suitable for uh, vulnerable people who are seeking asylum to live in. So, oh, no. so it's not a very inclusive or supportive way of, of accommodating people, mm. many of whom have traumatic experiences. They've, they've fled for a reason. So yeah. no, you're quite right. It's also really important when people are settled in in a new area, that they're given adequate localized induction about the area they're settling into, oh, uh, places they can go for support, and so on. And this is often not happening. So people who maybe speak very little English, mm. who have only recently arrived, are just dropped into places and into accommodation with no real support or induction to, mm. to the area, which can be really unsettling and and yeah difficult for people to, to then get on with their lives. Yeah, those cultural differences make your life so like so difficult. I have just come back from a succumbent to Canada and while I spoke the same language, English and French as, as the people around me, just the everyday cultural differences, I was noticing them so often, but we share a lot of the same culture, the people I was with. So I can't imagine the difficulty if you don't have the help and you just have to fend for yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, but also just having a uh, support in to being being told where can you go for support organizations and so on so very basic things uh, in a way and then finally we found a really shocking picture as well around the quality uh, of the accommodation that people are put into so very bad 
disrepair issues, pest infestation issues, mm -hmm. damp and mold. And it was really difficult for people in, in the asylum properties to report them. And uh, they often didn't feel that their reports were taken seriously yeah. or that anything was being done about these issues. And the standard of, so the minimum standards of what should be included in asylum properties is also Yeah, very minimal. So, for example, Wi-Fi is not included, and we know how important it is to be able to well, maintain contact yeah. uh, with relatives and with friends, but also to, to find out about your local area, shops, services, and yeah. so on without Wi-Fi or without internet access. That's really, really difficult. So, you know, Wi-Fi, you would think, would be a very good and important thing to include. Also, televisions are not, not included. And again, for people who are not allowed to work, who have just arrived, who are wanting to learn English, yeah. watching TV could be a really helpful way to get started. And finally, vacuum cleaners. So oh, many properties are not do not have vacuum cleaners. And so it's really difficult for people to to keep their properties clean and if you're yeah. living on a on an allowance of 40 pounds 85 pence a, uh, a week it you know you cannot afford uh, to buy a vacuum cleaner so so really some sort of minimal a minimum uh, standards for mm. what should be included for a state of repair would be really important to make lives easier for people and just out of basic human decency Absolutely. It sounds like an even more difficult process than, than I considered before. And I really hope that those recommendations are listened to and acted upon and that you're able to get the ear of the right people there. I'm aware that we're ending on quite a negative note there. I wanted to ask if you've got any positive stories or examples of really good practice that you've come across in your research that you wanted to share. Yeah, difficult. <laughs> As you can hear, so this is, this is a, quite a hostile And, mm. and fragile system. There are a lot of support organizations out there who are doing amazing work in uh, supporting people. Mm. Uh, they're doing it in very difficult circumstances. They're often having to spend a lot of resources and time on chasing grants and funding. Yeah. But there's a lot of uh, really good work being done by third sector organizations. So that has been yeah very good to see. There's also a lot of uh, voluntary work done actually by people who are seeking asylum while they're in the asylum system. Lots of the people we have uh, worked with and uh, interviewed and talked to are themselves engaged in voluntary work, working for food banks, yeah. doing other types of voluntary work. So I think it's really important to recognize the contribution of migrants and of people in the asylum system to our society in terms of, of their of the work they do, but also in terms of the, the diversity and richness they bring culturally and, and socially. And yeah. that's some of the lessons I've taken. Thank you. And yeah, you mentioned that the those three groups that you're researching, there's crossover between them. And that's that's really great to hear. Thank you. Finally, before we go, it's been really interesting to hear about your work so far, but you mentioned you've got some work planned for the future. Can I hear about the projects that you're looking forward to at the moment? Uh, yes. So I am currently working with a colleague, uh, Silke Schomler, who's a, a postdoctoral fellow. And we are, uh, we've been really interested in seeing what is actually happening with policies and practices on the ground around reception of Ukrainians coming to the UK. Mm. And so we're just about to start a, a very small project to begin with, but hopefully can grow to something bigger. Looking at the experiences of Ukrainians coming to the UK and who, as I said before, they're being hosted through this kind of private hosting scheme. Yeah. Uh, also looking at 
policies, uh, so the local authorities, other people who are involved in receiving them. How does that work out on the ground? And finally, the responses of existing Ukrainian diaspora organizations, because there are Ukrainians who lived in the UK for decades. Some came over in the post-war period as labor migrants. Others have come at other points in time. And we're interested to see what they're doing and how they're contributing to the effort to support Ukrainians arriving today. Fantastic. Well, good luck with that. It sounds very timely, but also I imagine there's potential for comparison work with your existing work in the future as well. All the best with that. Thank you so much, Meta. It's been really interesting to hear more about your research today and especially just your expertise in the lives of asylum seekers in the UK. You've definitely taught me so much today. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Emily. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting. You can follow Meta's project on Twitter at solidarities underscore and at UCL underscore MRU to find out more, as well as other work at the Thomas Corum Research Unit on Twitter at TCRU underscore UCL to learn more about their research. Some of what we've covered today is also available in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, we have an archive of 16 past seasons. Search IOE Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from to find more episodes of Research for the Real World, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. And a quick favour before you go, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it if you could give the IOE Podcast a rating. Five stars would be nice if you're enjoying the show. And that will help us to reach more people who are interested in hearing about such important work. I'm Emily. Thanks for listening. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagin is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 